What do we got? Boy, that was way too loud. What do we got? Uh, my name is Devin Morgan. I'm the director of youth baseball here at Driveline, founder of the Driveline Academy, and I guess I'm kind of your host for whatever this is going to be called. Uh, the Driveline Youth Baseball Podcast, the Driveline Skills at Scale Podcast, the Driveline Academy Podcast. Uh, we don't know. So maybe tell us what you think name is good and sucks, and we'll deal with that later. Um, so we're going to be talking about youth baseball specifically, and because youth baseball market is so specific, we wanted to kind of give you your own podcast to lean into this stuff. Um, so for anybody that doesn't know me, I've been coaching youth baseball for, I think this is either my 11th, I think it's my 11th year, um, actively coaching, wasn't going to coach this year. My son talked me into coaching juniors, so we're right back at it in addition to running the academy. Uh, gentlemen. Yeah, my name's Ben Harley. I'm an assistant coordinator here at the academy. I'm also the head coach at Centralia College. Um, before Centralia College, I was the head coach of Valley Catholic High School. Um, I've coached anywhere from third grade through high school ball now into college. I've uh, been with the with the academy for about a year and a half now, and been good time trying to build it from the ground up and and see where we can take it. That's right, Tone. Um, Tony Davila, uh, coaching operations coordinator for the academy, um, and I coach locally at high school around here. I've been coaching for six or seven years now, mostly fourteen through eighteen year olds. Tight. So uh, we want to start off with give you guys just a topic to really dive into at first that is kind of uh, hypersensitive to where we are right now, which is just talking about onboarding. Uh, what the hell do we mean when we're talking about onboarding? Uh, we're talking about like a progressive buildup of throwing stimulus and workload. Um, so the general idea here is essentially the same stuff that like Kyle and Mike and Matty D and Brian and all like we've always talked about at driveline, which is like progressively trying to build up throwing fitness. Um, like back in the day when I started at driveline, we didn't really have a youth team program and I was on the CR side and we would talk about uh, when kids would come in for assessments. It's like, hey, look, you need to have established some type of workload before you can come in here. Uh, the general idea is like if you're going to come in here to assess as an athlete, we want that first bullet that you fire in the mocap lab to be representative of the way that you approach competition. Uh, but like it broadly doesn't make a lot of sense to like hop off the couch and try to send it as hard as you can. Um, so on the youth baseball side, uh, this is something that we've kind of been talking about for a while. Um, but a lot of it I think is dictated just by what coaches have to deal with and what the constraints that they have relative to their seasons. Right. I think a lot of times in little league, what we want is we want to be able to have like a three to four week period of time where you can kind of progressively build that stuff up. And then uh, first games, you kind of like want to moderate what those pitch counts look like. Um, just at a very, very basic level, understanding that like monitoring pitch count is not everything uh, because there's this whole other thing involved there about kind of calculating uh, like actual workload. But at a fundamental level, what we're talking about with onboarding is just like not going from zero to 100, specifically with our pitchers. And I think the same consideration can be made for uh, your other kids that are in high leverage throwing positions, your catchers, short stops, short stops et cetera, right? Um, and the funny thing is, is that, like, I think smart high school coaches, smart college coaches have been aware of this stuff for a while um, and, like, try to conduct their seasons this way. But a lot of times on the youth side, what we see is it's like, hey, you know, you have a well-intentioned well coach, practice number one. 40 to 50 pitch bullpen. And, and the intention is is like accurate. They're like, oh, we got to build them up. But like you, we want that build up to be progressive, right? Like when you guys do that on the college side, like what does that look like? 
we have so much time. We're like really blessed where we have an entire fall where we can go really slow. So if you compare our schedule to what Tony might have at his high school where he has two weeks basically to get his guys ready for competition and he wants to win day one, but he has to also have the best interest of mind for the kids, but also keep the parents happy because they want to win from day one so they can talk about it at the cooler with with their friends. Come, babe. And being able to make sure that you're balancing that the correct way and always leaning towards the safety of the kid. Where at the college level, we have four months in the fall, and then we have all of January and half of February to on-ramp. So we always have enough time, and it's not a big of an issue. And even with that much time, our first first weekend, our starters don't go more than 70 pitches. Yeah. And that's with months and months and months of prep. So that's where you see a guy in high school ball comes out, first start 80 to 100 pitches, and it's like, is that really what's in the best interest of the kid? And probably not. Yeah, we have... Let's talk about the WIAA and high school on ramp. (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean... Technically, from if you are following those WIA rules, so the Washington uh, Interscholastic Athletic Association. Correct. So some of this stuff might be a little bit hyper specific to Washington, but I th- I think in talking to a lot of high school coaches, that broadly uh, that constraint is not something that we're the only ones who have to deal with here. Yeah. So we have, if you're following the rules and you show up on day one of what you're allowed to do, um, we have about usually 10 practices before our first game is generally what we end up having each year. And those 10 practices are compressed into two hour blocks, but like two weeks. Oh yeah. It's It's like, like it's like two weeks. Yeah. Two weeks block. Um, and those 10 practices are, you know, and that includes tryouts as well. Sure. So we have three days of tryouts and then probably two more days, the rest of that week, maybe a Saturday practice and then one more full week of practice. And then we have our first game. Um, and generally, you know, even tryouts are tough because, you know, we're trying to see guys throw, but we have no idea what they've been doing all off season. Um, so generally, you know, we save our pitching tryouts till the end of our tryout period, um, or we have them throw minimally. Generally, we try and just look at certain mechanical things or whatever sure. that we can assess. We're not trying to have them throw 45 pitch bullpens first day of tryouts. Um, we don't need to see them throw 30 high leverage fastballs they throw one or two we're probably good um but mostly it's just gearing them up for that first game um you know trying to assess what they've been doing all off season is a big part of yeah what i try to do um early in the season you know have they thrown bullpens up to this point how many bullpens have they been on ramped have they had any sort of deloading period from the previous year you know um and just kind of see where they're at but generally, like you said, we kind of keep we kind of keep our pitching um, to about 40, 45 pitches max in that first game. Sure. Um, and once again, like you said, it's not all pitch count. Um, we do try and monitor how much throwing they're doing in between. We're generally lucky at our school where we have a decent amount of POs, but um, so we don't run into too much of guys pitching from the shortstop position or the outfield position where they're making sure. a lot of throws outside of um, on the mound, but yeah, like and like in the little league space, like you, you know, the, and this is the this is part of the reason why I think it's like it is hypercritical for our youth baseball ecosystem, which generates the kids are going to slide upwards. Little league is so important because exists in this space that's outside of kind of what's been defined in travel ball over the last decade or two. And little league can say that like, hey, we're we're starting at this point and we're just going to do practices for just like three to four weeks, right? And like. 
they're they're giving coaches that type of structure. So the only thing that kind of coaches, I think, on the little league side need to understand is like, man, you got to take advantage of it. Uh, which means that you you kind of have to punt on going like day one practice. Well, I want to know who I, my number one starter is. And I get it. Like I 100% get it, right? Like, but the problem is, is that if you if you really try to kind of figure that out, what you're asking a kid to do, and, and again, understand that we're talking about Little League Baseball. So the good news is, is that there's a structure to the schedule that allows you this type of freedom to like embrace this progressive buildup of throwing fitness. Mm-hmm. The, the problem, the gift and the curse, right, is that you're also talking about predominantly kids who only play rec ball. So we're not talking about kind of travel ball kids who have been, say, doing off-season training starting the previous, you know, fall and winter, and they're already in a pretty good place. Uh, some of those rec ball kids you're going to get first practice on, say, March 1st or late February or whatever, they haven't picked up a baseball since June. So with those kids, uh, I, I just think it is hyper, hyper important to really understand that like the best way to do this thing is just to, to ramp up. So what that probably means is not throwing a pen for the first two weeks of practice. Maybe the back end of that second week is probably the first one you're looking at, right? And yeah, at the earliest. At the earliest, yeah. yeah. If you can go longer, That's that'd be ideal. Yeah. It's tough because, you know, you have first game right around the corner and you want to make sure you get the throws in, but... Yep. Again, it's kind of nice that a link built in that window. Gives yeah. You an opportunity where it's funny how it's backwards. You think high school would be the one that has the built-in window. Yeah. I mean, you would think, right? <laughs> uh, no, but it's but it's tough, right? So like that whole thing, I think all is predicated on coaches that are made by adults about what's appropriate for the kids, right? And like what what's the value you're trying to provide to your families? Because if you if you accept and understand that like. What we're looking at is Little League Baseball games in April. And, and to a degree, and this is the way, Paige Schill, uh, this is the way that Youth Baseball, Baseball Development Certification course is structured, is to understand your season from like a developmental standpoint to a competition standpoint. So the beginning part of that, of that year, because the games typically don't mean anything, uh, the only thing that it's going to infer is what it looks like uh, for your end-of-season tournament championship, right? There, I, I know that there are some guys who have leagues where, like, the end-of-season tournament championship seating is decided by regular season record. My plea or suggestion, depending on how firm I want to be, would be that, like, I think if all little leagues embrace this idea that, like, hey, uh, that end-of-season tournament championship, which is a great thing because it gives your kids who don't play All-Stars the opportunity to play something that seems like it matters a little bit more, and that's tight, um, but if you have that seating for your end of season tournament championship be decided just by like a blind blind draw, right? Mm-hmm. Then you are empowering your coaches. You have to understand that as the league from the top down, if you have a good board of directors for your little league, they're sending that signal to your coaches that it's like, I want you to embrace this opportunity, right? That the regular season is just for figuring out what your team should look like when you start to play games that matter. Uh because the converse can happen too, right? If you if you give coaches that signal that like the regular season is really important, you can't blame them for taking what you're giving them and running with it, which then leads to I, I mean I I know uh, I know of a league who instituted like a firm fifty pitch pitch count uh, for the month of March because a couple of years ago they had uh, a kid in majors who went out and hit I think the eighty five pitch limit first game. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's it's so tough, right? Because I think as a as coaches, and I think even as a parent, right? If you have a kid that's doing well, uh, 
we we want them to have that experience, right? Like, I, you know, my kid went out and, and did pretty well in the one start that he had in his final year of All-Stars last year. He was really, really happy with that. And I let him go to the pitch limit. And it was the and it was the second time ever that I have allowed him to do that. Context: We started working on uh, arm care and building that stuff with a progressive workload in October. Like we're we're laying bricks for for trying to make sure that we're healthy in October that pay dividends in May, June, and July. And it was a continuation of years prior. Like you knew uh, yeah. exactly where it was for yeah. thirty six months prior of throwing. I yeah, think, I think a big thing you mentioned is just. Changing that incentive structure, I think, is a big and like we always talk about consequence um, at whatever age level you're at. So, you know, for me, I'm coaching, do head coach of the JV baseball team. You know, our games matter a lot less in sure. the grand scheme of things than varsity high school baseball. Um, and so I generally try and get that incentive structure in our players' heads, in our families' heads, and things like that, because then they start to understand, okay. What are we looking at long term? And that kind of helps, you know, myself and the players and the parents and just everyone around kind of understand why we're doing the things we doing we're doing in terms of on ramping and keeping kids at fifty pitches and not allowing them to go longer just because, you know, we're winning a close game at the J V high school level. Like there's there's no need for that. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, uh, the, I think the unfortunate reality is that a lot of this conversation about onboarding and stuff and arm care is you see the, the positive and the negative is effectively being dictated by adults, mm-hmm. right? But they're, but they are dictating this stuff to children, which means you have to take responsibility for like whether those kids are healthy or not. And like at the, you know, the top end of the food chain, uh, you have tools now where you can start to understand what this stuff looks like, right? Like, uh, MLB Pitch Smart is a tool because it's mandating, uh, you know, throwing counts and rest. And that is, uh, that's one way to kind of use that tool. That tool is a little binary in that, like, you were either over and under the pitch count, but it's, but it's better than nothing. And I think since, what was it, 2016 or 2017, since MLB Pitch Smart came out, I, I think that it's been a great tool uh, for organizations that embrace it. Uh, Little League is like uh, MLB pitch mark compliant, which means that that stuff should be mandatory. Mm-hmm. Um, what we don't have yet is like a national repository of like all of this information, which uh, if we got our good friends at Game Changer and Little League International like play nice with each other, that seems like something that you could do, but I digress. Uh, the next layer of that is is tools like Driveline, um, Driveline Pulse, right? Pulse... Uh, which some people used to know as Modus, is a wearable device that tracks throw count. Um, and because we're tracking th- all the throws, uh, you have the ability to kind of establish like two things, uh, where the workload looks like right on the single day, and then how does that story kind of unfold over time. Um, and like, man, you know, I, I would love to see Little League International purchase uh, just be like, hey, this is a thing we're going to we're going to use. Um, you know, there's, there's probably like a deviceless feature that you could use. Maybe we'll get there at some day where you just kind of like are plugging in pitch count numbers, but then doing the math on what like an average 10 year old looks like and calculating these type of like ratios, again, understanding the difference between the acute, what happened on the single day and how that kind of affects like the longitudinal overtime stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if we'll make that happen. Uh, I can tell you that, like, for us, you know, running the academy, uh, this year we went whole hog uh, on Pulse and have 200-plus uh, kids tracking every single flip and throw that they make. 
and, and, and it's a lot to manage, um, which again, kind of comes back to like the value prop for coaches, right? Because if it takes you, let's say it takes five minutes to get sensors on and to take sensors off. And let's say it takes another half hour for you to look at a report on your team. I'm, it doesn't take a half hour, but I'm just being, I'll, I'll be generous, right? Let's, 10 to 15 minutes. Yeah. Right, right, right. So let's say five minutes on, five minutes, five minutes on and five minutes off. Uh, and that's not even five minutes, five minutes total, 15 minutes, look at your report. Yeah. That's 20 minutes that a coach can actually get information uh, about, say, a player population of like 12 to 14 players and start to be able to make really good decisions about that. Well, that's five minutes of your practice that you're not doing hitting, throwing, PFPs, first and thirds, bunt training, bunt coverage. Uh, and again, so a lot of this stuff just is, is, is we have adults at the top end of the, the spectrum that are making decisions that are really, really impactful for the children, which is why coach training is just so important. Like it's, it's there's a lot of leverage there, man. And it really goes back to what is the incentive, right? The yep. incentive should be to keep the kid healthy as long as possible. So does the five minutes outweigh any bunt coverage or first and third or hitting time? In my opinion, yes. Like that's why we have 200 plus kids wear them. And when your kid is 18, we'll have known for the last five years exactly how many throws he's made. So then he can make a decision on what he needs to do before his freshman year of college. Mm-hmm. Like making really educated decisions instead of sort of guessing on where we need to be. Yeah. Yeah, it's just I think we're we're at a place right now where uh, the people that are using these tools are very much like at the bleeding edge. Uh, and there's a whole other kind of segment of people who are relying on stuff like MLB Pitchmart to make decisions, mm-hmm. which, again, is a, is a great step in the right direction. The, the tricky thing is the is the third group, right? The third group where it's like, you know, Johnny's going to go, uh, you know, 40 Saturday uh, 20 mop up game three on Sunday. And then we're in the championship and he's going to go 107 pitch CG. Like that was a thing that we saw, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a couple weekends ago, um, in it, early spring in, in, in early spring. <laughs> and it's like, man, unfortunately I've seen it the other way too, where, you know, not so much, uh, teams trying to win tournaments or whatever, but also, you know, I've, I've coached a team or here, team or two here where, you know, we're on the losing end of a 20 to four game. And, um, you know, some coaches might let their pitchers just go. Cause they're like, Oh, well, I need to save my pitcher for tomorrow. Right. Somebody's got to wear it. Somebody's got to wear it, you know? Um, but so we have to be careful on that end as well. You know, some, sometimes we just, we think, Oh, well, we got to save guys and we got to prepare for other games. It's like, you know, you're ruining that one kid. You might as well throw your third baseman the next game who, yeah, he's never pitched before, but yeah, the kid who wears it hasn't been throwing probably enough. Anyways yeah, to, right. To be yeah. In a situation to throw yeah. those innings. Exactly. So, right. So, so both like, ends of the spectrum. I mean, you yeah, get it. And, and like, I mean, it, it, again, all of this stuff, I think just revolves around like what we're trying to get out of these sports, which is the, which is the tough thing. Right. And I, I, I get it. You know, I, I, my position on this stuff for a while has just been, I think, largely uh, because you're talking about youth baseball where predominantly the coaches are not paid professionals, but they're parents who coach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doing the best they can. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and doing the absolute best that they can and, and fundamentally have the right intention. Yeah. Like that's the, that's the good thing is you can feel really confident that most youth coaches, it's not like when I was a kid where like, 
I don't know, probably two thirds of the coaches that I had from like 12 on, like they were all like functional alcoholics. Like, <laughs> like that was, that was just a thing, man. That's how youth baseball was. <laughs> uh, you know, coach would just like, man, you know, he's just going to like rip a couple heaters, uh, you know, coming out of the car and he's, he's got a six pack. That's like a little bit half dead that he drew, you know, drank on the way over there like that. That was a thing. I don't know if, if people really appreciate that right now, but like oh, yeah. before youth baseball was like a billion dollar industry, it was uh, it was carried forward by a lot of guys who were coaching Little League, uh, Legion, Babe Ruth, who were baseball lifers. And sometimes some of those guys, and I'm not saying all of them, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but like, <laughs> you know, some of my experience was just like guys that like, man, they were... It was very, you know. It was different than it is today. Man, it was different. It was different. You know, there's a there was like a lot of like bull Durham to the way that like are just like 13 through 18 U baseball used to be. Uh, now, you know, now it's a little bit different. But, it, but again, like the good thing is nowadays is like, again, the, I think the intention is there. The problem is I think that intention is motivated by fear of like, how do I explain to my child what it means if we lost? Because it's really easy to understand winning, right? Mm -hmm. It's really, really easy, right? And, and we, we see this with, like, people crowing about the game changer stats. Or, you know, we went out and we went, you know, 4-0 on the weekend. And we took, like, man, that's great. And I'm not saying that those things are bad. Mm -hmm. But I'm just saying that, like, if, you, if you're defined by, like, that fear response, right? That like winning is a thing that I feel really comfortable uh, putting context toward and failure is something that I struggle with, right? That I want to orient my kid away from because I'm I'm scared of what it makes them feel. Man, there's a whole bunch of decisions that kind of go down that, that road uh, that I think are just motivated strictly by fear avoidance. Like that's tough. It puts you in a tough situation yeah. uh, at all times. Like you're trying to make the best decision, balancing that line. Yeah. And you have other kids other people's kids as well in your control and it's a tough spot yeah we yeah. always we have a i have a coach who always um he simplifies it down to like process over outcome and just trying to like really get in kids heads like you know if we figure out this process and deal with the process the outcomes will come eventually maybe not right away like you're talking about the first half of the little league season you know it may struggle a little bit but your process is good eventually you'll see those results in the outcomes yeah and um, I think really balancing that those two things and getting kids to understand that is a huge step in the right direction yeah. and coaches to understand that. Yeah. Which is, which is funny because I think if we, you know, if we're, if we're known for anything in terms of like drivelines approach to youth baseball or specific to the Academy, you know, a year and a half into it, it's for this idea of skills of scale. Mm -hmm. And that, and I, and I think the, the thing about that idea is that all we're trying to do is just put a little bit more of our chips on that side of the table with the knowledge that like over time we are going to shift uh, along the way, mm -hmm. right? Like uh, I think broadly what we kind of advocate for is like for 12 and under, man, you just, you really, there, there's a window of skill development and skill acquisition and, de and developing motor output that we don't want to miss because we, because what you don't want to do is you don't want to be those kids who are like 24 months away from being on a 90 foot field mm -hmm. and are fundamentally like, non-negotiably ill-equipped to compete for that play space change. Yeah, it's hard to catch up when you get to that size field. That Man, way. you know, like I I had a one of my son's friends uh, came up to me at our juniors game uh, this last Saturday, and he was like, so like, can I do the driveline? 
and uh and and he's so he's a year older than my son so he's gonna be playing high school ball next year and it's like uh and he's he's not he's not terrible right he's he's not terrible but uh and he's a bigger kid i would say he is behind the curve for like what one of our our big 12 views look like right now mm-hmm. and he's going into high school next year mm-hmm. um and, and it's not uh and again my response was like yeah man let's figure it out because the reality is is that we still have 48 months that we can work with mm-hmm. right let's we've got 48 months to kind of develop you into ideally having a competitive high school baseball career and if that's where it stops that's fine mm-hmm. But the the problem is, is that if like if you if you're under indexing for that stuff early, well then by the time that you're 14, man, you have to be able to play functional baseball. Yeah. And learning that stuff takes time. Yeah. And if and if we have to consume our time that way, because I think high school coaches can have a tolerance for a, a developing player, but it's it, it's tough, right, for a non-functional player. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have to front load all your chips on that side by the time that you're 15. How are we going to make up the time for everything else we need? Yeah, and I, and I think uh, like a big thing that I was kind of trying to get towards was that like, you know, we don't, especially with youth baseball, you know, we're talking about um, failure and winning and things like that. And we don't want kids, we're not saying that, you know, focusing on this long-term development and this process automatically means failure. Sure. And that's, I think, a big thing that, you know, a lot of coaches and just baseball people in general don't tend to understand is that like just because we're looking at long-term development and down the road doesn't mean this doesn't help us in the interim in the short term sure and i think that's kind of a big key you know this on-ramping period that we were just talking about for pitchers is like yeah like we're looking towards the back half of the season for them to be like at their at their best but them being healthy throughout the whole season helps us more in the short term as well you know like and having healthy pitchers that we can throw every day helps us in the short term you know so I think that's kind of a big thing is like, once again, that incentive structure, we don't want to just push it all towards the end, but, and I think we don't, I think having these processes, these on-ramps really helps short-term, but the main goal is still long-term. Yeah. I mean, and I, I think the, the funny thing is, is I think largely like baseball up the chain looks this way, right? That like there are teams that are at the highest level of competition who are yes they you got to win enough Mm -hmm. but they are trying to play their best baseball later in the year right like that's that's the whole idea is we we hear this stuff all the time it's like you know joe bucks in the booth talking about teams that are bringing it all together in october Mm -hmm. like if major league baseball teams are existing on that paradigm then presumably uh prepubescent baseball can also come to kind of that same agreement Unless you're just in this other mode where it's just like game, 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 game. And and then it's just like, it's like the, the, the ceiling just drops. And like every game is like this, this pressure cooker environment of like, we have to, you know, we have to win. Yeah. Fall ball with a tournament championship yeah. and preseason tournaments with the trophy and things like that, that just totally destroy that kind of period that we have that should be you know like you said if even mlb guys are taking yep four to four to six months to like deload on on ramp get ready for the season why are we not including that with our younger children and things like yeah that, so and that can be exhausting for kids too yeah so like season after season after season fall winter spring summer everything matters yeah that's exhausting that's why they end up not playing in high school they're burnt mm-hmm. out yeah 
with school and everything else yeah. that they're going through. Which is funny because I think sometimes like this, you know, we hear this push all the time about the push for multi-sport play with kids. And uh, on the one hand, unilaterally get it, right? Because like baseball is going to teach you how to solve specific athletic skills, but it's not going to teach you how to solve all of them, right? Like soccer is going to have you teach different or solve different type of problems, hockey, tennis, golf, like it's all, I, I, you're right. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I think the push for multi-sport play is literally just to, to solve for that. Yep. It's, it's like, it's like, we're literally just like, how do we solve <laughs> for not grinding you into emotional dust? Because like every weekend, your feeling of, of wholeness and competence as a human being is going to be defined by some fat old guy like me who is putting, who's just sending the signal that like the only thing we have tolerance for is winning. Yep. Mm -hmm. And their Monday at school is determined by how Sunday goes at the tournament every yeah. single week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is funny because uh, we can go into our next segment. I guess we're calling this That Ain't It, Chief, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Let me see if I can figure out these buttons to make this work. Oh, boy. Um, so uh, speaking of things that that ain't it, uh, here's, here's a score of a game, 32 to three, nine you, um, man, this is, uh, this is tough, right? Like this is really, really hard to kind of imagine that the people who are in, in the ecosystem don't realize that this is just like, this is not what we want out of nine U baseball. I just have so many questions. Look at the box score. Like, how, number one, did the coach continue to run at the 32? Did they not run out of time? Because most tournaments have a time limit. Yeah. How in the world did they get to this big of a discrepancy? And then I just want to know what the, the losing coach said to his players. Like, what is the message? And what is he pushing forward to the parents? And also, what level was he winning nine U teams? Should they have even been in this tournament? Like, there's so many unanswered questions. And just generally, like, how do we structure youth baseball in a way that allows this to happen in a, in a sense? Like I know um, to try and bring this to like my high school experience, we've been playing games now for a few weeks and we have, you know, I coach a pretty good high school Yeah, and we just played a game on Monday where we won 21 to three. And, you know, I'm, I'm asking why don't we have a progressive run rule system in high school? You know, so it's, because, you know, they say, oh, well, we want everyone to get reps or whatever sure. their excuse might be. Those reps in the fifth inning when they're down 15 doesn't help anyone, you know. Um, and, you know, I'm even in those games, I, 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 like I said, I've been on the other side of it. And in those games, I think a big thing that should make it so this kind of score never happens is, you know, you talk to your players about if you're the winning team, you talk to your players like, hey, we're still like doing our thing focused on ourselves. We are trying to, you know, play clean baseball, but in a way that, you know, is kind of a slowed down element, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. station to station, whatever it may be, but in a way also that still respects the other team. You know, we don't um, just not do something because we're ahead, you know, we're still playing the fundamental game of baseball, but at a kind of a toned down pace in a way that, like I said, I've been on the other side of teams. I actually coached a team um, that we lost a game. What was it? About 27 to 5 or something like Let's that. Let's go. Um, and that was an 18U baseball game. Yeah. Um, and I had a kid who was a junior in high school, and he 
told me after that tournament that he was quitting baseball because he just said, you know, like, and the other team in that game, the other team was stealing, bunting up 15 or whatever. And it was just like, that's what happens when you do that kind of stuff. And yeah, when it comes back to the adults are the ones making the decisions, mm-hmm. like you get to 10, you should be playing station to station mm-hmm. and like very, they're unwritten rules, but they are the mm-hmm. rules that we follow in baseball usually. And mm-hmm. again, it all comes down to the adults. Man, it's it's hard to teach feel. Yeah, like it's it's hard to teach feel, man. And like, uh, shout out to Brian Southworth. Uh, I I got tagged in this score. Uh, reposted something about like, just I don't know with nine U that like we really need to be keeping score. Uh, and my man Brian shot me a uh, a box score forty one to nothing. Ooh. Uh forty one to nothing. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I forgot one critical detail. Eight U. And how there's how there's no how there's no like you know five runs per inning max or whatever you know things like that. that sure. Like, and and once again you know some people might argue the other way. Oh well, we want them to like play as much as possible. But you know once to again that's benefit. yeah. So whose yeah. benefit is a forty-one to zero game helping anyone? And like in so so the thing that like the conversation that was kind of going, uh, I I kind of like posted and goes to this one a little bit because I was like, all right, I know people are gonna yell at me. Uh, <laughs> Where's the incentive structure coming for a coach to compel that type of behavior? I mean, is it fundamentally an issue where a guy or where a man or a woman just lacks this type of feel? Uh, or is this kind of like a tournament thing where it's like, hey, run scored affects our seating. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it, and I, I understand that those things are there. Uh, I think sometimes like when you hear a lot of our local tournaments are just evaluated by runs allowed. Yeah. Um, so you don't need to score 41. <laughs> right, right. But like, but ultimately, I think just the larger question is, do we need to keep score at 9U? And, and presume that like, if I'm saying at 9U, then I'm also suggesting that maybe at 8U, 7U, 6U, because that's happening, right? Like 6U tournament baseball is happening. Where this is can a... barely throw across a 60-foot field or whatever. Yeah. Coach pitch... Tournament baseball is a thing that is in our ecosystem right now with with trophies. And we're flying across the country for for 6U. I, we're trying to keep this podcast clean. This is me uh, using every fiber of my being, being like not to just like go, what, the, what are we doing, man? I just don't know how the parents, I have a two and a half year old. I don't have a six to ten year old just to preface that, but I just don't understand in four years, why I would ever take my kid to a six U tournament and try to win a trophy in Texas or wherever we're going, Florida. Or, and I yeah, know. I think, I think it comes all back to that like incentive structure that we yep. keep talking about. Cause and, and who, who's responsible for kind of keeping this corrupted incentive structure going <laughs> in, structure going, because, you know, if the incentive is, you know, the future of our child in baseball, right. I mean, I'll, I'll say I, you know, had a few college offers um, to play baseball, and I played juniors up until thirteen. Sure, whatever, until my freshman year of high school. Sure. Then I got into you know select baseball after that, but I was playing little league with my friends for my most of my childhood, and still was able to you know have a chance to play baseball and pass high school. So yeah, if that's if that's the case, like. What are we what are we really looking at here? Well, and the bigger thing is you still enjoy the sport when you're older enough mm-hmm. to work in the industry. Exactly. Where kids are quitting when they get to fourteen or sixteen or whatever it is and they want 
nothing to do with the sport. So mm-hmm. when they have children, their kid doesn't play baseball. It's just this never-ending cycle. Yep. Yeah. And we it, wonder why less kids are playing baseball. Yeah. <laughs> well, right. And, like, you know, I mean, you look at this box score, right? 32-3. Uh, there's a different version of this game where these two same teams could have played and it could have been controlled into a more competitive experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, uh, when you have parents on this losing team who like, I mean, in man, I don't know S from S, right? I'm just kind of making guesses based on a very lopsided score, but mm-hmm. like, let's presume that kind of the fundamental issue here is that one of these teams is like very much, uh, they probably have stuff on the skill side and they're also like highly functional, right? It, and, and by functional, I mean that like they really know how to play the game of baseball. Baseball IQ, you. yeah. Baseball IQ is super high, and 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 that's not a that's not a bad thing, right? I mean, I would I would love to be able to like look at our our eleven U team next year, or specifically actually our twelve U academy team next year, and be able to feel really confident that that kind of those teams were playing highly functional baseball, and we had paired that with kind of what we the boxes we wanted to check on the skill development side. But for this for this scoreboard like there is a way that you could have these two teams play each other and not have it devolve into this uh and but you need to just have a variety of different adults at different stages of like this of this chain making decisions in consideration of that and i think the the tricky thing is is it like when you have parents who they're on you know for us the northwest travel ball facebook page right or you're on whatever social media platform du jour uh, and you see, hey, you know, uh, Tommy down the street, you know, they went to some tournament and he came back with some hardware. Uh, I think as parents, again, a lot of our behavior gets compelled to just be like, well, am I doing the best thing for my kid relative to what you're doing? Right. You know, like if uh, if your kid gets a new set of Oculus VR stuff and my and we live on the same block. And my kid's like, well, hey, you know, Harper's got the new Oculus. Get it together, Dad. Like, I'm going to buy it. <laughs> right, I'm going to get that signal that I got to come out of my pocket for a couple hundred bucks. I think the same thing can occur uh, when it comes to just like sport participation nowadays. And it's, and it's, I don't think we are ever going to be able to get everybody on the same page to go like, this is broadly inappropriate. Mm-hmm. So it, it begs the question of like, what does it look like to create an ecosystem and environment where where there is kind of this agreement about control. And I just think the best place that you can probably get that to start is just Little League. Because yeah. mm-hmm. Little League can mandate these type of rules, and Little League can kind of mandate this type of perspective, and they have the largest body of players. Yeah, they could control something like this and make yep. it really beneficial for the players yep. right in their own ecosystem. Yep, because, you know, some of the larger tournament organizations, um, I've, I've been guilty of this, right? Like I, I've been guilty of looking at some of the large tournament organizations and like trying to castigate them for some of this behavior. But the problem is that's not the problem they're trying to solve, man. Like they, they're putting on a tournament event and they want teams to fill it. And like, that's, that's kind of it. Yeah. That's their job. That yeah. Like yeah. that's, that's their job. And because there isn't, you know, there isn't a unified kind of like governing body at the top end to constrain any of this type of behavior, then why why would you look at one of these tournament programs and go like, well, I, I just don't, why they're going to have to stop taking checks. Yeah. They're not going to do that, man. Yeah, and, and, and I think there's an there's kind of two sides to um, this problem that we're talking about is, you know, one, how do we kind of prevent, you know, if teams are 
kind of lopsided in their skill and baseball IQ. You know, how do we prevent situations like this with this kind of score and still make it fun competition between those teams? And also, how do we prevent those two teams from playing each other? Sure. In a way, you know, in a way, like yeah. if there is a team that is high baseball IQ, very skilled for their age, you know, um, they should be playing other teams that so they do have that kind of competition and they can progress in the at the level that they want to progress and the lower level teams can progress at the level they want to progress and kind of, you know, make sure that because we don't want to just even everyone out, you know, that, sure, and, that, sure. and it's, we're not saying that every team has to be equal, um, but we just need to create an environment kind of where either if those two unequal teams face each other, it's, we can still manage it or keep those teams kind of away from each other and the high level teams versus the high level teams and, you know, whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, and figure out a way to and for our local tournament provider it wouldn't be totally impossible to have every team that enters have to get evaluated before they play like you send an evaluator to one of their practices determine their majors team whatever it is and then adjust from there at least or it even, gives them a barometer starting spot yeah. or even something is i mean i know this is we're just spitballing here but something as simple as you know plug here for our academies we track everything we do yeah. We know, you know, what our velos are, what our exit velos are for all of our age groups. You know, yeah. getting even something as simple as that, you know, like at least we know at the 16U level, uh, we're not having a guy throwing 85 versus a team that whose top guy throws 68, you know. It's <laughs> something yeah. as simple as that. If we knew that, this type of score probably doesn't happen. Yeah. It'll eventually happen. It's basically sure, yeah, but sure. it doesn't happen as often as often as yeah. it has been. Yeah. Sure. And like uh man, you know, like we're so within our academy, uh shout out to David Besky in uh, driveline R and well, I guess Besky's kind of uh, he's an R&D guy, whatever. He does a lot. <laughs> he, Besky does a lot. Besky's the man. Um, I just had uh, Besky in our R&D team uh, redo our velocity aging curves and our top eighth exit velocity aging curves. And one of the things we're trying to provide internally with our academy is context to parents. I, I think, I mean, if I just think broadly about uh, one of the things that is most needed in youth sport and what we're trying to do internally with the academy is just tell parents the truth about where your child is right now. So like what we have is kind of this aging curve that kind of shows here's broadly where our 14 U's look like. So you can kind of make that, make this kind of conclusion about like, well, if I understand quantitatively where my 13 U is, and I understand kind of what most 14 year olds look like, and if I get one level deeper, this is going to be me spending a bunch of time in track, uh, driveline track software <laughs> uh, later this week, if I can somehow find the time to do it, is go like, well, this is the, then one step further. This is the difference between our most competitive 14s and our, our kids that are 14 that are still developing. I can kind of just be able to say to a parent, this is where you are right now. This is kind of the gain that we would expect over the next 12 months. And it'll tell you kind of where you, what kind of track you're on, right? Uh, and, and with the caveat being that like with kids, man, you eventually somewhere between like 12 and 15 have this big biological ramp up, right? Mm -hmm. Like that thing is going to happen. Uh, but if you understand, you know, broadly where you are now and you understand where you want to be in the next 12 to 18 months, you can start to kind of like get this little breadcrumb, tra breadcrumb trail of how competitive are you and specific to, to this thing, right? Like, if, if we can kind of go, hey, our most competitive 10U kids, this is generally how they look like, right? For the stuff that we can easily kind of quantify, you could be able to say to a parent, like, hey, this is this is where you are right now, and this is what I expect over time. But, like, broadly, 
jumping into deep water a competitive 10U t- tournament baseball, it might not be appropriate for you right now. Yeah, where the averages are this across, right. across the board or whatever. Because the thing that I've that freaks me out is what you hit on is these kids that quit early. Yeah. Like kids that quit this game early pre-pubescent, right? Before they get that kind of biological modifier and they're just like, I don't like to play baseball because it makes me feel crappy. Mm-hmm. Like, man, when we lose kids like that from the game early, you just, you never, you know, you never know. And that sucks, man. Mm-hmm. Um, so not good for anybody. Nah, man. So I, I don't know. It just, that ain't it. You know, that ain't it. And I, I get it. Uh, and, and, and my presumption is, and I'm not trying to paint with too broad a brush. I presume that the, the men and women that are involved with that team that won 32 to three, they love their kids. I, I just, I, I don't doubt that for a second, but you got to understand this stuff in terms of like system and structure. They're compelling this type of behavior. Um, Cause man, otherwise well, you see a lot of the, like the olds, the olds, and I'll put myself in that group. Cause I'm <laughs> the person that drive line closest to death. Uh, well, a lot of us advocate for is like Sandlot baseball. Mm-hmm. So, so like what you were saying about like, there's a way that these teams can kind of be appropriate. What would happen on a Sandlot? Well, if it's the three of us that show up on a field, I am the smallest, clearly, because I look like a child behind this desk. <laughs> and like one of you two is getting picked one or two, and then I'm going to get three, and we're going to go through the rest of the line of like the, the 18 to 24 kids that we have. And children are literally trying to do this on a sandlot, mm-hmm. right? Like, make so, even teams. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, like kids understand this yeah. stuff. Yeah. But then it comes to the parents in the equation, and, and we end up with tournaments. And then you have this larger incentive structure about, I, I want my kids to win because winning makes them feel good. Uh, I want the parents to evaluate my program well and come back. So I don't want us to lose. So I got to kick the crap out of this other nine U team 32 to three. Mm-hmm. And it's in its, in its behavior again, that it's just like 100% compelled by adults. So the great thing is, is that if adults can kind of solve for this stuff, then the problem is fixed. Mm-hmm. And if not, then just continues, then we're just going to keep running this loop. Um, and the tricky thing, I think, for us, you know, internal to our own academy, is how do we bring in kids who might be, you know, again, on a developmental track, build them up over time, but still give them appropriate gameplay experiences. I, I, you know, it's it's hard. Yeah. And finding like-minded organizations. Yep. Exactly. Agree on what we're doing and want to focus the same way that we are. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah. I, and it's, it's funny because I'm in my head, I'm just racking my brain. You know, we're at the high school and college level where you know we can only you know there are no bodies that kind of govern how we interact with other teams and things like that i mean to a certain degree there are but you know we get what we get in terms of like you know you recruit a certain amount of guys and that's who you have to work with and and that's the squad you know high school is even more like this kid's in your district um and these are the teams you get so you know we're talking about this how do we make it kind of more even at the youth level and we should, because as you get older, then you start to get those, you know, a little more kind of attrition drive that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And as kids develop more, you'll see more like teams with a few more developed kids and things like that. But until we get to that point, let's try and stay away from that as far as much as possible. Okay. Yeah, I, <laughs> I just think broadly, if, if what we've gotten out of this shift in tournament and travel baseball in the last like two decades is early attrition, mm-hmm. <laughs> man. We gotta solve that problem because all we're gonna produce is uh, is is I think less and less kids that just want to continue to play this yeah. game. And and I think you see it at, like you're talking about attrition, like how this goes 
up to up levels, you know, like we're seeing at college baseball level, um, you know, programs winning 25 to one against some colleges. And it's because this kind of mindset of like, Oh, well, I got to go to the best school yep. um, and we have to get this squad full of guys and we want to play, you know, I don't mean to disparage any colleges around here, or but <laughs> no, um, but you know, you see like some team like uh, Mississippi state playing like some, D three school up in Ohio or right. whatever, and or D two or whatever, whatever they play, um, and they win twenty one to zero, and it's like, who is that good for? It's the school. It's kind of the same. Like, yep. it's the adults making the decisions on a corrupted incentive structure that affects the kids, and who does that really help? You know, so yeah, that ain't it, man. And if it's starting at nine, you, of course, it's going to continue <laughs> yes, at yes. Yeah, uh, yeah, man, that ain't it. That ain't it for sure. Um, so uh, we can wrap with uh, a little bit of our audience Q and A. Um, so shout out to uh, Driveline Plus members who get exclusive access to be able to kind of send these uh, questions in, and then later we'll ideally be able to stream this thing live and have them be able to check it out. Um, but Jim, uh, Jim Colden, who's been a long time uh, Plus guy, Jim's a man. Um, had a question. My 14-year son plays both travel baseball and national level tournament golf. And hopes to do both in high school. That's tight. Um, two questions for years. We have heard people tell us you shouldn't do both of these sports because playing baseball ruins your golf swing and vice versa. Uh, is this an urban legend? Can we help dispel it? So uh, I know Myth. I heard this yeah. <laughs> a, a ton. And it was not only about golf, but it was also about tennis, which is <laughs> which is funny because like you're you're just talking about rotational sports. Yeah. Tending best is good. Yeah. Are you? <laughs> Hold on, hold on, hold on, slow down, slow, slow down. Uh, right. So, other than kind of, the, I think the season problem, right? Because I think in high school they're both going to be in the same season. Golf is uh, state is in the spring. Okay, they play most in the fall and then state and gotcha districts and state or whatever. It is. Okay, so the seasonal problem, notwithstanding, is there is there any reason to think that either golf well, let's just stick to golf. That golf is going to like negatively impact a kid's swing. No, we, I like. I, I have uh, one of our, you know, just anecdotally, uh, we have a senior at our high school who's our starting catcher and our two hitter who is also a member of our, our golf team. And our golf team is a legit golf team, so he's he does both and he's perfectly fine. <laughs> so anecdotally, no, it doesn't yeah. affect it. <laughs> yeah, I just don't see why that's an issue. Like. You can't separate the two. And again, I just don't see why that's an issue. Yeah, it's so funny, man. There's just so much stuff like in, in our game because the game is so old that it just gets like carried around like luggage, you know? Like, and this is, to me, this is no different than like baseball players shouldn't lift. Mm-hmm. That, that was a thing that we were actively told for decades. A long time. For decades. Yeah. And like my, my favorite example of this is that like I remember there was a, uh, in the late, late 90s, uh, Ken Caminiti, Brett Boone, uh, like you, you had some dudes who, uh, you know, they were getting bigger. May, they were getting bigger. Uh, <laughs> head sizes, cap sizes going up a little bit. They're getting getting a little, uh, get a little big in the head. Uh, and to be to be a hundred percent clear, uh, a lot of the stuff they were taking baseball literally didn't have rules against taking yeah. it. Right, like this is, you know, there's a famous uh, article uh, with Mark McGuire, and he was like just had. Um, Oh gosh, I can't remember the stuff that he was taking, uh, but it was like just out invisible in his locker, right? Mm-hmm. Like that. So that that was also going on too. But anyways, 
there was this article right around that same type of time uh, talking to baseball players uh, about strength training in Sports Illustrated. And they were talking to uh, one of my favorite players when I was a kid, Fred McGriff, crime dog, right? Mm -hmm. And they're talking to Fred McGriff and he's like, uh, I'm out on all this weightlifting. I, he's just broadly just like crapped on all of it. And then the interviewer or whoever wrote the article was like, well, well, Fred, like, how did you get so strong? Like, how did you get there? And he's like, well, when I was in summers, I was at uh, Atlanta Fulton County Stadium carrying around cases of soda and beer. And I'm like, Fred, that's strength training. Yeah. <laughs> Like your, your, your work is compelling you to get stronger. I think this is a lot of times the same thing why we, uh, we like lionize like guys who are like country strong. Yeah. Their work just happened to mandate. Look, hay bales yeah. And, yeah. Right, yeah. right. So like, you know, as it pertains. The, off, the offensive line of the Wisconsin football team is massive. <laughs> yeah. Those guys aren't necessarily all in the weight room since they were 10 years old. Right. So we, we kind of, you know, had this period of time where just like actively telling guys not to get strong. Consequently, uh, the guys that then figure that stuff out just look like behemoths in comparison. But this just seems very similar to me to like the, the golf thing, right? Because golf, rotational sport baseball rotational sport right yeah. like you're you're blending linear movements into rotational movements uh i i just i don't and i understand this is like highly anecdotal but i just don't know how you could suggest that like rotational power development is bad in one sport is going to be bad for a sport that necessitates rotational power development and you may have to make adjustments between the two obviously to but, workload even yeah, yeah. right to workload yeah especially but you know to say one is bad for the other you know you do have to differentiate between the two. You can't necessarily take your golf swing directly into baseball, sure. but it's not going to harm it if you understand how to compartmentalize those two things. And right. I think I think it's it's interesting, especially this sport we're talking about, golf and baseball, because you know we talk about the kind of the future of baseball development and how we're kind of tracking things. And golf is on a eerily similar path in yes, terms sir. of how they're developing developing their athletes and things like that so i think it's especially funny those two sports being told you know yeah i mean i just i think the only way that golf could ruin your baseball swing is if you don't index for the fact that the ball is moving in baseball <laughs> like that that that's yeah. that's really really it so to a degree i guess if uh if if what you do is just like you sit on a driving range and you just murder uh you know a driver and then you try to step in a box and you haven't seen a moving pitch in a while, then then sure, like you've yeah. under-indexed for yeah. the development of the perceptual solution about where and when I have to swing. Yeah. But in terms of like the actual mechanics, I I don't know. In the go, great watch, go watch Mike Trout hit a golf ball. Yeah. Man, <laughs> that's what I was just going to say. Because the great thing with social media, I mean, we just spent a bunch of time talking about how social media is compelling a lot of bad behavior in tournament baseball. But the great thing is, is that you get to see Mike Trout nuking golf balls yeah. at like a top golf right yeah. we've seen uh mike trout obviously shout nelson out to cruz. eric sim uh tosh cruz. all the boys down yeah. there nelson cruz hitting tanks like we we kind of i think we're starting to like knock down the wall there a little bit to yeah. just understand that like okay uh what you want to do is rotate and hit thing hit thing hard mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that's the game mm -hmm. right like that's the game Move so fast yeah, yeah. well I don't know, dude. We'll we'll have to do Step move. Right. Yeah, we'll do move fast as a different segment of that ain't it chief <laughs> later because boy, there's a lot to unpack there. So yeah, man, I, I just think uh man for Jim, I, I truly think that if 
if there is any truth to that, it's solely going to be on like the perceptual side of like just literally uh, learning movement solutions in consideration of the ball being moving. Shout out to my man, uh, Chad Longworth, who's constantly on the anti-T work train, uh, which is like, the, I mean, that's the thing that we're getting towards, right? Yeah. It's just like you, you can't separate our sport from the perceptual demand. So you should probably try to train that stuff. Yeah, you've essentially, I mean, in golf, you actually use a tee. Right. It's so you've been hitting the ball off the tee for the hey, whole now. golf season, probably start to move into front toss and live arm and How, machine work. You, you know those, um, those, like, those hitting machines for kids where there's like a little puff of air and it sends the wiffle ball oh, like yeah, straight up? Great. You've seen those, right? I love those. How, how tight would it be to have a golf league where the ball isn't on a fixed... Uh, but just a little puff of air. Dude, and you literally just have to like... <laughs> like and then just yak. Oh, that'd be electric. I want to see that in a long driver competition. Yeah, I want to see if Omekasun try to do that. Oh, <laughs> man, that'd be great. Now I'm thinking about what are the benefits of using those tees over regular tees for youth kids. Uh, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just the balls that kind of float even just a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. A, a stable Stationary, ball. Yeah. yeah. I, that just popped in my head. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, we're going to go down a deep rabbit hole. Uh, so the only other the only other question that Jim had was for athletes playing multiple sports, is there a non-negotiable base level of arm care that should be followed even while busy with other sports? Uh, which is funny because I'm literally li- uh, writing um, a blog and a script for reverse throws. Mm-hmm. And I think if I just had to pick like one thing, I would want to have a kid be doing consistently while they're doing this multi-sport play, it would probably be something to develop the posterior shoulder or to just, or I'm sorry, to maintain the posterior shoulder to make sure that you can de- safely decelerate. Mm-hmm. So uh, for anybody that isn't up to speed on kind of all this type of stuff, the reverse throw is just the throw that you typically do into a wall and you're just kind of sending it backwards, counter-rotating across the body. But what we're really trying to develop is everything that's back here, right? And, and all those muscles in that posterior shoulder are what's responsible for deceleration slowing down the arm post ball release. Uh, it seems like there's enough kind of research and understanding out there that when you don't, when you don't have that system trained adequately, that's when you can have bad stuff happen. Yeah. I would um, think there's a few base things like, you know, with our wrist weights, you know, pronation sure. swings working on, you know, because, um, deceleration and the pronation throughout the pitch, like if you can protect that and work on, Protecting that UCL. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're we're close to an hour into this thing, so I might as well just like really, you know, yeah, let's talk about the flexor pronator mats. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Like it's a it's a segment uh, of the elbow uh, that we want to develop and strengthen and start to pattern in this this pronation that naturally happens when we're throwing. Um, it's not just like you don't just stay here, like a lot of times that we I, what I was told, right? you naturally had that pronation happening. And in order to kind of do that safely, uh, yeah, we want that flexor pronator mass uh, that protects the UCL to be strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, post ball release, we want this posterior shoulder that that essentially helps the arm decelerate safely. We want those things to be strong. Um, so, you know, again, and we've, we've kind of already talked about this stuff, paid shill, uh, driveline pulse is the best way to kind of understand this stuff and how you could just do something like, just like, recovery throwing uh which recovery is kind of a a part of a structured throwing program that you could find in our free intro uh, youth arm care program uh next level up the chain hacking the kinetic chain youth um next level the chain youth baseball dev dev certification course but anyways a recovery day is low intensity 
low volume movement. Um, and you could, you could probably during golf season layer in stuff like that uh, and layer in something like a hybrid B where you probably something like 60, eh, 70-ish percent intense, a little bit higher intensity, a little bit higher volume, but you're not like blowing it out. But I think just layering stuff like that in would, would probably put you in a better place for when you do have to go pick up a five ounce baseball. And I think the big thing with these little things that we're talking about is like, you know, yes, if you are a golfer or whatever sport you play, you know, you have your, if you're playing for a select baseball team and you have your off season, yeah, you may not be able to do those kind of like go in and do a bullpen or whatever that some of the other kids who are one sport athletes might be able to do, but this stuff you can do in your backyard um, yeah. against a fence and that what a side of the house, a brick side of the house, and you can throw a plyo ball and do that at home and just make sure you're staying on track, at least in that sense, which I think is really nice you don't have to go to a facility and nope. do this kind of stuff you can just do this at home and make it really easy on yourself so one of the favorite emails that i ever got when i was still working the cr desk here at driveline and i think uh shout out to my man alex valasek uh summer of 18 class uh who got this email uh we were talking to this guy and he was like hey i want to throw these plyos and i don't have anything around me but like trees but like he was like well can i throw them against a tree well yeah man just cut it loose you know like like go ahead <laughs> So we ended up getting in this weird conversation about like, you know, birch, alder, like what's going to be the best tree for velo. <laughs> so it was, yeah, 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 yeah. But like he was, you know, my man was just like throwing plyos uh, against a tree. So shout out to that guy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just think generally, uh, number one, your golf swing is not going to ruin your baseball swing. You're developing rotational power. Rotational power is good. Mm-hmm. If you're going to do anything, just make sure that you have uh, some amount of kind of baseball training once you're getting back into that season or you're kind of layering in that's going to revolve around the ball moving because that's the sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then just, you know, again, stuff, simple, simple stuff um, like wrist weight drills and reverse throws to kind of just like let's focus on the thing that matters most. We got to stay healthy and we have to stay healthy having a strong uh, yeah, it brings it back full circle to our whole on-ramp thing. It's... Hum, babe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the same thing, right? It's just like uh, having having a all the stuff revolves around having a plan. Um, and when we're dealing with, uh, I think older high school collegiate professional athletes, it's always going to be contingent upon them for like executing the fidelity of that plan. Like I I did the thing last night that we constantly tell athletes not to. I PR'd on my bench, lifetime PR. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about it on the podcast because why not? <laughs> I'm not going to show the video because my shirt rolled up. So like my power belly came out. But <laughs> anyways, uh, felt great about it. Crushed a ton of calories. Cause like I, cause like when I finished, like I literally like my, you know, I was shaking. Like it was, it was. It's go time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then I had a horrible night of sleep. So I woke up this morning feeling like I got hit by a dump truck. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if we're thinking about recovery, thinking about things like nutrient quality and sleep quality is really, really important. And if you have a plan, right, like it's easier to kind of maintain uh, the way that you stick to those things. When it comes to building up throwing fitness and arm care, again, you just want a plan. So free intro youth arm care program, it's free. Google it. You'll find the PDF or you'll sign up for the PDF uh, and you will have the ability to kind of understand what a structured plan looks like and then you can start to Think about how you implement that plan into your life. If you want to go one step up the chain and go on a driveline uh, pulse, 
uh, and start to track that type of workload, man, that's that's great, right? That that's obviously like the top tier solution at this stage. But the reality is, is that you there are free solutions where all you need is just a plan to follow and information about why and how, and you can start kind of orienting for this stuff for health, which is going to get you better performance long term because the longer you stay healthy, the more you can kind of compound interest on these gains. Shout out to Paul Stewart for our compounding interest trophy that's uh, right behind Ben's head. Uh, that's tight. Um, what else? I think that's all we got. Um, I think so. Yeah, so thank you guys for joining us. Uh, we're going to try to do these about every two weeks. Um, I think next time for our That Ain't It Chief segment, we will talk about the parent accosting the kid in the bathroom. That's a, that's a, that is a literal thing that I heard a couple weeks ago at a tournament. Uh, so we'll get into that conversation next time, but thank you guys for joining us for the driveline youth baseball podcast, the driveline skills at scale podcast, <laughs> the driveline Academy. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta commit. We're going to have to workshop this thing, but anyways, uh, Devin, Ben, Tony, thank you guys for joining us. We'll catch you next time.